0: Continuing in our upside down series on the Sermon on the Mount. Perhaps one of, well, we can't put a premium because all of God's Word is God's Word. So, how do you say what, what portion of God's Word is more important? But this Sermon on the Mount are three chapters that lay out for us the governance of those of us who will live and dwell and walk in the kingdom of god when you become a citizen of a country you adopt the laws of that land and you say i will live by these laws and so it is also as kingdom christians we belong to a kingdom that also has laws and they are outlined for us in matthew 5 through 7 and we have been studying these laws and These principles that are to govern our lives over the past several weeks. Last week, we talked about how Jesus elevated the requirement. And uh, those Pharisees who were accusing Jesus of doing away with the law, he said, no, 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 you've got it wrong. I've not come to do away or abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. I've come to ensure ensure that every letter, every jot, every tittle of the law is fulfilled. And so he says, you think that if you put a gun to someone's head and murder them, that that's a transgression against the sixth commandment, but I want you to know I want you to know, when Jesus says, I want you to know, I want to I perk up my ears and listen, because Jesus has something to say. He says, if you have hatred, anger, animosity in your heart, you've already committed murder. That's a pretty challenging thing. And last week, we saw how Jesus elevated... Their view of the sanctity of marriage, and he said, any lustful thought that you have in your heart, you've already committed adultery. They thought they only committed adultery if they were involved in an extramarital affair. But Jesus said, I say unto you, you've heard it said, I know you've believed this all your life, but you don't understand The law of the kingdom is a higher law and we can't fulfill that law unless the Lord Jesus Christ by his spirit lives and dwells in us. Now in these next two verses in this chapter, Jesus deals with a very hot potato. We all know what hot potatoes are, right? You just get rid of them quickly because you don't want them to, to burn your hands. And Jesus deals with this hot potato that very often pastors gloss over sometimes because we don't want to offend anyone, especially hot potatoes that deal with sensitive subjects like the subject of divorce. And I do understand this morning that this subject requires a great deal of sensitivity. Divorce is very, very complicated. It impacts people emotionally on very deep levels and the reality is so many in the body of Christ are touched by it. Kathy and I were both raised in very strong Christian homes, yet we each have siblings today who are divorced. So we understand and are keenly aware of its reality and the pain that it brings into families. But it's part of the red letters of Matthew 5 through 7. And because as kingdom Christians we say we want to know what Jesus has to say about life and how we are to live it, we cannot gloss over or ignore or jump over the verses that we have before us this morning. But they are actually to shape our worldview that will determine how we live and govern our lives. So, God helping us this morning, we want to turn to our text in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. And I also want to say this morning, before we begin preaching, is that I totally understand that there are so many ramifications and so many facets and so many nuances of how and why and when people get divorced. And so in this message, obviously, in one message, I'm not going to be able to cover all of those, answer all of those questions. I'm just praying that the Holy Spirit, even without my voice, will speak to every heart this morning. So we want to uh, read God's word together where Jesus says, it was also said, verse 31, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman also commits adultery. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word this morning. You may be asking, why, pastor, would you really choose to pick up this hot potato and speak on this subject. Well, first of all, we're in a verse-by-verse study of God's Word. So if you are a Berean Christian, you're looking at your Bible, and you would wonder, why did Pastor jump down to verse 33? And why did he ignore verses 31 and 32? Did not Jesus speak those words? Those of you are familiar with Calvary chapels, That is the only way they preach. They preach through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, and verse by verse. I often wonder how they deal with Chronicles and all the genealogies. But since we are in that kind of expositional study of the Word of God, I uh, feel it incumbent upon me not to gloss over these verses but to share them with you. But equally and even more important is I'm responsible as your pastor to teach you the whole counsel of God's word. Amen. We say all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So someday I will have to stand before the Lord and give an account of the stewardship that he entrusted to me as your shepherd and as your pastor in teaching you all that is in the word of God. It's my intent this morning to address this message to three different audiences. First of all, is this mic hot? I don't want to be blaring anyone's ears. You're okay? There are three audiences that I want to uh, speak to this morning. First of all, those who are yet to be married... Whether you're in this audience or hearing uh, this message on YouTube uh, or Facebook currently or at some later time, uh, young people look forward to being married, and I just want to say at the very outset that you are starting on a very wrong foot if you insist on marrying an unbeliever. The Word of God is very, very clear when it says, we are not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Do we understand that marriage is a yoke? It brings us into an indissoluble union in the sight of God. And as being in that union, the scripture says, what fellowship does light have with darkness? James, uh, Amos also says in chapter 3 and verse 3, can two walk together except they be agreed. Do we understand that a kingdom Christian and an unbeliever are two people from two different worlds? They belong to a different kingdom that is diametrically opposed to the other world. And there are some Christians who just insist, well, I love this person, and I'm going to lead them to Christ. Please, stop flirting to convert. It doesn't work. Conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit. And God doesn't need you to lead that person to Christ if your only intention is, I want to get them saved because I want To marry them. God has Mr. Wright and Mrs. Wright selected for you. And parents, grandparents, I believe we have a grave responsibility to be praying for our children from birth. God, prepare that spouse that you've ordained becomes the husband or wife of my son and daughter. Because you know what happens? You insist on having your way, and they even act like, Oh, I'm 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 becoming Christian. I'm going to church with you. And I'm reading my Bible and I'm I'm doing all of these Christian things. And then you get married, and guess what? Everything changes. Now your church husband doesn't want to go to church anymore. He was going when he was dating you to win you over. But now he doesn't want to go to church anymore. He doesn't agree with you tithing. He wants you to engage in otherworldly activities that you've now cut off because you are a born-again believer and you feel that pressure because he's unhappy. You're not making him happy doing the things that he wants you to do. Guess what? It's too late. You've made your bed and now you need to sleep in it. And so the caution, the clear caution of God's Word is don't play with fire because we know what happens when we play with fire, we are going to get burned. So I'm speaking to those who are yet to be married. They need to understand what God's Word says about marriage and divorce. Secondly, I'm speaking with those who are married And pray and ask the Holy Spirit to so encourage your heart today that regardless of what kind of challenge you are facing in your marriage today, that God will encourage you to stay steadfast and immovable, always abounding in the work of God. That you will absolutely obliterate from your language and from your thought the idea and even the word divorce. Because it doesn't belong in the mind of any kingdom Christian. Take it out of your vocabulary. Now, there's one caveat here that I would be quick to suggest and to say. That God does not expect any Christian to live in an abusive relationship. And there are those that take advantage. You're a Christian. You need to lay down and let you be a doormat that I could walk over. And sadly, there have been some naive Christians who've believed that and have allowed that, and that is something that God does not condone or bless. If you're in an abusive relationship and you've tried and you've worked through over and over and it's not changing, then you're not under any guilt or condemnation for a separation. Praying that somehow, some way, God changes that person's heart. Because that separation isn't necessarily the green light. Okay, I got rid of him. Now I can go find a good husband. I don't see that clearly in God's word. And I'm trying trying to honor God's word and still be sensitive to everyone's needs. But I'm also speaking to those who have been through a divorce. And I want you to know today that there is no condemnation for anyone who's gone through this painful experience. And perhaps whenever this subject presents itself, you feel like it's pulling a scab off of an unhealed wound. You need to know this morning that God's grace and healing is available to you. And sometimes it takes a long time, but there's always a fresh measure of grace and healing that God wants to flood over your soul. Don't believe for a moment that God is angry with you because you're divorced. No, a thousand times no. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. I know we as Christians have a tendency to segregate sin. This is... ah. But that same person who feels that way... I believe in the sight of God because of their pride and their arrogance and their hypocrisy are even more repugnant to God than some of the grosser sins that we've cataloged as, oh, those are unpardonable sins. But yet we could go through life hating and being bitter and being jealous and sins of the spirit that are so grievous to God. So understand... There's no condemnation. The reality is every single one of us have sins that we've committed that we feel remorse for. If we could do it over again, we would do it over again. We are great sinners, but thank God His grace is always greater still. God doesn't hate divorced people. God hates Satan's intention to destroy This holy institution of marriage that he ordained to bring blessing and wholeness into his people. God hates the enemy's intention. As we read in John 10.10, he comes as a thief to still kill and destroy. And he does that in Christian marriages. You know, people have a way of focusing, as I said, on the sin of divorce, but what God is more against is really the sin that caused the divorce. And sometimes we focus on the sin that our spouse committed when God is saying, did you have a part in that? You know, when we get self-righteous and we we don't want to take up our cross and follow the Lord and we we need to be right and we need to win and we need to be on top and we need to show that person how evil and how bad they are that's the sin that god hates it's the unchrist likeness where we don't want to die to ourselves and our right to be right but sadly divorce is a reality in the fallen world in which we live And I think we could all attest to the fact that there is no bride or groom who ever stands before a minister or justice of the peace and has this goal in mind, I'm going to get divorced someday. Clearly, that's the last thing on their mind. It's not there. It's not even a conscious thought on that blissful day. Yet when we look at statistics, it's obvious that Not all newlyweds were thinking through this possibility because statistics demonstrate that almost half of all the marriages that take place end in a divorce. I believe that's thanks, no doubt, to our no-fault divorce, easy to obtain, end a marriage. And what do we base it on? Irreconcilable differences. Did you know that marriage by definition is all about irreconcilable differences? If you are married, you could say a big amen to that. We know it's true because we marry our opposites. And we think, God is wise? God, how can you give someone to me that is totally worlds apart from how I think and how I feel and how I act and how I want them to think, feel, and act and react? The moment we say, I do and are joined into this holy union of matrimony, we inherit irreconcilable differences. It's part of the package. And think about it. If you and your spouse were identical, one of you would be unnecessary. And we fail to see that it's by our differences that we really complement one another. That is God in his wisdom. He planned it that way. I'm so thankful. God knew exactly the wife that I needed when he gave me Kathy. You know, on a very practical level, I didn't grow up in the ministry. I grew up in a Christian home, but not in the ministry. Kathy grew up as a pastor's daughter and was in the ministry all of her life until she married me, saying she would never marry a pastor. (laughs) But it's because of the strengths that Kathy acquired through years of being In the ministry and understanding pastoring that she's brought so much strength to me. And not only, obviously, in my calling as a pastor, but just in my humanity. Because my weaknesses are Kathy's strengths. And the gift that God gave to Kathy when he gave her me is the fact that my strengths are her weaknesses. So do you see in marriage how God brings two people together to strengthen where they are weak because we need that other person in our lives. And now now let me add this very important truth. God's design for marriage is what we never think it is in a million years because everybody wants to get married. I want to get married. I want to be happy. Marriage will make me happy. God's goal is not to make you happy in marriage. God's goal in marriage is to make you holy. And do you know how we get holy? When our spouse rubs us the wrong way. And we're willing to kneel before the cross and say, Jesus, help me to take up my cross. Give me your humble heart and sweet disposition to be kind and loving and forgiving. Certainly, happiness should be the byproduct of any godly marriage. But God ordains marriages to make us holy. You know, we, get, we have it wrong because we think the pursuit of happiness, though it's enshrined in the Declaration of Independence, it's not God's goal for our life. The Bible, in fact, teaches us that we experience God's peace in the midst of the storms that marriage sometimes bring, joy in the midst of difficulty and contentment in the midst of chaos. It's what God brings. It's the God factor because it's not just two people as kingdom Christians We come together in covenant with one another and with God as being the head of that marriage and of that home. What God wants more than our happiness for our lives is that our marriages give him glory. And you know how we give him glory? We give him glory when we persevere through the hard times and say, oh, what a mistake. Why did I ever marry that person? You know, the enemy starts planting thoughts in your mind. I could be much happier without them. I could live a better life without them. And the lies of the enemy begin to build. The next thing you know, you're in divorce court. It's all been part of the plan and the strategy of the enemy. Well, time is marching on. We need to look more closely at our text this morning where Jesus deals with this subject in verse 31. Notice, he's quoting the Old Testament scripture when he says, it's been said in the Old Testament whoever divorces his wife let him give her a certificate of divorce now what's the context of this verse of scripture let's read what Moses said in Deuteronomy 24 that's what Jesus is quoting When a man takes a wife and marries her and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house. See, there's a debate that is going on in Jesus' day. What exactly did Moses mean by saying she finds no favor in his eyes Why? Because he has found some uncleanness in her. What does that uncleanness mean? Is there something serious here like sexual sin or was it a broad statement that could mean just about anything? Well, it seems that because there are always two points of view, there were two schools of thought on how to interpret that passage of scripture. So there were two rabbis, one a liberal and one a conservative, just like today, right? The liberals followed Rabbi Hillel, and the conservatives followed Rabbi Shammai. Hillel's views saw uncleanness in a very broad context. And in fact, it's pretty amazing to consider the words of Moses when she found no favor in his sight for some uncleanness that could constitute any number of things. For example, if he saw someone more attractive to his wife, he could say, well, Moses said she no longer finds favor in my sight so I could divorce her or if her hair is not tied up in a bun and covered when she goes outdoors, you did it now, lady. I could divorce you. If she was found talking to a man in public, that was grounds for divorce. If her voice in the house was spoken in a way that the neighbor next door could hear it, that was definitely... Grounds for divorce. And guess what? Even if she burned his dinner, that was grounds for divorce. Obviously, you get divorced for any good old reason that you could find. Inane reasons, stupid reasons. The school of Shammai, on the other hand, believed that the only grounds for divorce And for finding no favor in his sight because of some uncleanness meant very specifically that there was sexual infidelity. And so Jesus clears away all of the confusion of these two camps and he says, but I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, any reason except sexual immorality commits adultery. So Jesus takes away all of the excuses, all of the rhymes, all of the rationalizations as to why I feel I'm justified in getting a divorce. It's interesting that we're living in the same kind of day and age as the school of Hillel, where we have a very liberal view of divorce. It's, you know, the no fault, irreconcilable differences. Jesus says... God's word has already made it clear adultery is the only exception for breaking the marriage covenant. Now, let me be quick to add and to emphasize this truth that Jesus did not say that sexual immorality mandated divorce. In fact, because of God's grace, if the guilty party is willing to repent and his spouse is gracious enough to say, I'm able to forgive you for this terrible violation of the marriage covenant, then there's healing and there's wholeness. And I believe even in adulterous situations, if Christians can take the high road, and if there's really sincere repentance that your marriage can continue to be blessed on levels that are greater than what you had even before. Because there's no sin that Jesus did not take care of on the cross. And he says, as I've forgiven you, so also forgive. But he also makes the provision, if this is a deal breaker, then it's okay. You're justified in getting the divorce in addition to this passage we, in uh, Matthew 5 there's one other place where Jesus addresses this issue and that's in Matthew 19 and we just want to look at that for a quick moment here and beginning in verse 3 the Pharisees also came to Jesus testing him oh they loved to test Jesus didn't they saying to him is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason There again, the school of Hillel. Jesus, do you buy that? Is that really the truth? Everybody else believed it. And he answered and said to them, have you not read, verse 4, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Will you forgive me for just pausing here for one quick moment? I just can't resist to make a comment here about the sick America that we are living in today. Where the CDC, everybody knows the CDC, right? We we were banking our health and lives on what the CDC said during the pandemic. But now the CDC has come out and said that you as a parent should not write on a birth certificate the sex of your child. Lord have mercy is right. Because we're living in a woke world today where the evil left is trying to foist upon us Their idea that even though a person might be born a male, he might be a male in a female body so he could change his sex. And he has a right to do that. The audacity that we have, the gall and the arrogance to think that we could take what the creator God said, I have created as male and now change it into a female. And then everybody in America needs to embrace it. Everybody in America needs to endorse it. Everybody in America needs to support it. And if you don't, you're not woke. And I fear the day will come that by my preaching against that kind of wokeness, that would be considered a hate crime because I'm not being sensitive to that child who thinks that he prefers playing with dolls, that he's a girl. I better get off of this soapbox because I feel really, really passionate about it. So we are forced today to ask a person, what are your pronouns? You look like a woman to me, but if I call you her instead of him, I'm in trouble because your pronouns are him. In fact, there's a variety of 76 pronouns that all of us in America are supposed to learn because of this woke society that demands that we take on their ideology that is spawned in the pit of Satan's hell and is a smack in the face of the God who created us. It's mind-boggling God said verse 5 for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh so then they are no longer two but one flesh therefore what God has joined together let not man separate see, Jesus states the original intention of God for marriage, his design, he quotes, Jesus quotes Genesis 2 and 24. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and be united with his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. I don't think we've really wrapped our minds around what it means. Not only our minds, but especially our hearts. About God's design for marriage, two becoming one. Two, two different personalities, two different individuals, male and female, becoming one. Sadly, we've limited our understanding of that becoming one flesh as a reference only to sexual union. But that's not the intent of that word flesh. In the original Hebrew, it goes far beyond the physical aspect. The biblical view of one flesh communicates that there is an indissoluble unity that covers every facet of a couple's life as they're joined together as husband and wife. It's a union of emotions. It's a union of thought it's a union of, of finance that we understand it's I don't have my bank account you have your ba- I don't know I don't understand maybe I'm old school I don't understand how couples can have that's none of my business and now I really I really am putting my nose where it does not belong But in a marriage where there's unity and union, your money is my money and my money is, it's our money. And we both want to be faithful stewards of how God has entrusted us with this money. Verse seven, they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? Verse 8, Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but, that's a big but, from the beginning, it was not so. Do we understand that before sin entered the world, God's plan and design for marriage was there to be this unity that was indissoluble? And I say to you, here's Jesus, you've heard it said, but I say to you, see, he challenges the accepted norms. Whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery, and whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. You know, when the Pharisees heard this, they're shaking their heads, they were just shocked. Jesus, if what you're saying is really true, then maybe it's better not to marry. Guess what? They're right. If you enter marriage without understanding that this is for life, this is forever, then you better not get married. You know, sadly, in today's world, people take their vows, and they refuse to say now, for as long as we both shall live, So they say, for as long as we both shall love. Well, did you know love is an emotion? It's there one day, it's gone the next, because we're human. Well, maybe we should say we still love a person, but we just don't like the way they said it or did it, and that like is so strong that maybe it's the antithesis of love. And I stopped loving that person for that moment. So now, hey... This is grounds for me to get rid of you. Marriage is such a beautiful gift. God created something amazing in marriage for those who are called to it. And I understand that some are not called to marriage. And God blesses that immensely as well. We all need to walk in our calling. One of the teachers in Bible college that had The greatest impact on my life was a woman who was called Ma Shelton. She never married, but her life was so full and rich and fruitful. It was amazing. Her life verse, the lines have fallen unto me in pleasant places. I have a great inheritance. She didn't go through life saying, God, why did not you send a man into my life? She was blessed in the state in which God put her and she gave herself entirely to him and he used her and fulfilled her in ways that even a marriage never could. But it's the blessing of walking in our own calling. If we're to have happy, healthy, wholesome marriages... When Kathy and I counsel married couples who are in trouble or being challenged or having difficulty, we tell them all the time, marriage is a four-letter word, W-O-R-K. And if we're not willing to work, don't put it all on your spouse. Two people working together for God to get glory out of the union. It requires that we lean wholly on Jesus. It requires that we pray a lot, that we forgive a lot, (laughs) that we rebuke Satan a lot because Satan knows just how to allow our spouse to get to us. And sometimes we just need to say, get thee behind me, Satan. Lord, I bless my wife. Thank you for the gift that she is to me. I'm always challenged by the words of Mike Bickle. My bride was his bride before she became my bride. And Jesus laid his life down for his bride. So must also I lay my life down for my bride. But it requires dying to our flesh a lot as well. So it's my prayer today that God would bless our marriages that God would heal hearts that have been broken through divorce and separation, that God would give us fresh resolve to make Christ the center and centerpiece of all of our relationships in our homes and in our hearts so that we might receive the blessing that God has ordained, that God desires, that God longs to pour into all of us as we completely surrender our hearts and lives to him. Amen. 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 We're going to close with that song, The Blessing, and we want to receive that blessing into our marriages, into our families, into our hearts, into our homes, into our workplaces. Whatever our hand finds to do, God says, I want to bless. So is your heart open to receive? As we make Jesus first place, he said all of these other things will be added unto you. As we covenant with him, saying you are Lord over all, (laughs) all of these other things shall be added unto you. Let's stand together as we sing the blessing.